Rumours abound that Cressida Dick is about to resign as the boss of the Metropolitan Police. We'll wait and see what happens over the course of the next hour. We'll talk also about whether, given 6.1 million people on the waiting list for procedures on the NHS, the time has come to give people tax relief on opting into private medical schemes. And of particular relevance if Cressida Dick has resigned. Joining me on Talking Pints, former Home Secretary Jackie Smith. Over the last 48 hours, the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has been putting extreme pressure on Cressida Dick, the boss of the Metropolitan Police. We've learned in the last few minutes she is stepping down from her position. We will, over the course of this show, get reaction to that from our own Home Affairs Editor Mark White and from Stephen Roberts, former Deputy Assistant Commissioner. So we'll talk extensively about that piece of news we've had confirmed literally in the space of the last two minutes. Now, my first show here on GB News at 7 o'clock was on the 19th of July last year. And the first show I did, I said I thought we had a massive looming health crisis, a waiting list of over 5 million people waiting for procedures, huge numbers of people. We now learn the number is 10 million who have not had various medical checks and screenings. And I speculated that we're heading for a huge looming health disaster and that perhaps one of the ways we can partially deal with this is to use the private sector more extensively. And my belief that the private sector could upscale more quickly than the NHS and the public sector. And I've argued consistently since July the 19th that one of the ways we could help take pressure off the National Health Service is by giving people tax incentives to get private medical insurance. Well, I was really delighted that yesterday in the House of Commons, a senior backbench Conservative MP took the same view. People of a certain age, of which unfortunately I'm one, are terrified because they think that if something goes wrong, they may have to wait in pain for two years. And we can't wait till March 24 to join the back of a slightly shorter queue. And then we see our friends who have private health insurance. Uh, I'm not one. We can't afford it. And we see that they're seen within days. So may I suggest one policy which would be wildly popular with many of our own supporters, which every Conservative government did till 1997, that is to give tax relief to private health insurance. And before, before the... Well, why not look at every innovative solution which actually unleashes new money? And before the Secretary of State says that's for the Chancellor, will he at least put it at the back of his mind so when he's next talking to the Chancellor, he at least discusses it? Uh, Mr Speaker, I'm always pleased to talk with my uh, honourable friend about his uh, ideas and, and suggestions and we'll be happy to meet with him and discuss this further. But I'm, I'm sure also he does agree with me about uh, the importance of making sure that we are investing in the NHS, investing in the workforce, so they can deal with as many people as they can possibly can. Well, joining me is Sir Edward Lee, the Conservative Member of Parliament who made that intervention yesterday. He's the MP for Gainsborough. He joins us live here on GB News. Sir Edward, uh, well done for that outbreak of common sense yesterday. But you seem to be met by a complete brick wall from the Health Secretary. Or did you just take him by surprise? 
I've raised this before, and actually, I think I got a slightly more positive response than I've had in the fall. At least he's going to keep thinking about it. And I understand that my colleague, Paul Beresford, and also David Davis have raised this. So maybe there's a growth movement, because I think there's no point in just bunging another £6 billion into the NHS, if, because it's a socialist construct, as we know, riddled with incompetence, it'll just, most of it will go, will fade away. We, recipients, retired people, won't receive it. So how much better to encourage uh, retired people of that sort of age to actually take private health insurance? And then they, they relieve the pressure on the NHS. So I think it's an idea, and you're right, Nigel, to have raised it. I think it's an idea whose time has come. I do as well, Sir Edward, although if we're being frank, and even though I can see that the private sector can adapt and move and expand more quickly than perhaps the public sector, it still isn't the whole solution to a massive looming problem, is it? It's not the whole solution. We all know that if you've got cancer, heart, serious stuff, you're happy to go to the NHS, and you're probably dealt with in a very effective way. But people of a certain age are really worried that when it comes to elective surgery, it may be a hip or something like that, they would have to wait in pain or knee or something for two years. So when actually uh, Ken Clark uh, created, uh, under the last Conservative government before 1997, this tax relief for private health insurance, he precisely made this point. Now, you will ensure you will agree, Nigel, that Ken Clark and John Major are not raging sort of left-wing members of the Conservative Party, <laughs> but they brought in this policy, Nigel, and it was very popular. And uh, I think it would be wildly popular with many of our supporters who at the present time can't afford private health insurance. They know that they're stuck in the NHS. They know that they might wait in pain for two or three years. They can see their friends who can afford it getting seen within days. Yeah, yeah. If the last Conservative government under John Major could do it, why can't we at least think about doing it? But I agree the really important stuff stays with the NHS. And Sir Edward, can I ask you, is this, was this just one intervention from you in the House yesterday, or could this become part of a sustained campaign? Well, I'm planning to ask certainly Paul Beresford and David Davies if they'll come with me to a delegation to the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, and actually put this to him. And I, I will say this could be a really popular policy. Now, I'm sure there'll all be sorts of Treasury arguments throwing cold water at it. There's something called the deadweight cost. In other words, a large number of people already have private health insurance and therefore we're now giving them tax relief. But if Rishi is looking for creative ways to try and build back our support amongst our you know, naturally conservative supporters, I can think of no better idea. I think it would be hugely popular. And it, you know, if, you, if you go private, you are paying for the private health care, but you're relieving pressure on the NHS. So, of course, the Labour Party hates it. And when I made that intervention in the Commons, of course, the Labour Party started shouting me down. But their only solution is just to throw another two billion, another three billion, another four billion, another five billion into the bottomless pit of the NHS. And many retired people know that actually that money may not reach them. Yeah, no, I listen, Sir Edward, I get the argument. Make me a promise that you'll come back on this show after you've met Rishi Sunak to tell us what the response is.
I'll do that. Thank you, Nigel. Splendid. Thank you very much indeed. Well, let's go to the front lines of this. And I'm joined by Ahmed Malik, consultant, orthopaedic, foot and ankle surgeon. Now, very interesting what Sir Edward said about older people. So my mother, who's watching now, is in her early 80s, needed a knee replacement, and rather than waiting for two years, went privately, had it done. Never been privately before in her life. You're on the front lines of this. How much help, in terms of substance and size, how much help can the private sector give the NHS? OK. Um, good evening. And Thank you. Welcome. It's a great question. Listen, I need to be open and put out a conflict of interest. I'm a full-time private surgeon. Mm -hmm. So basically, you could be um, accused of bringing up a turkey farmer to vote for Christmas. Of course, I'm going to say the private health care. But listen, um, the ironic thing is I'm not here to tout for business. Uh, I don't need it, and I, I certainly don't want it. I'm here because I want to save the NHS, believe it or not, because in the last two years, our politicians, contrary to what they've been saying about saving the NHS, have destroyed it. And now let me come to what, I, what do I mean by what should we do now to save the NHS? You're absolutely right. There are thousands of healthcare workers and professionals, experts, who actually work in the NHS as well as the private sector, yes. who can help a lot of the people out there who are suffering with disease and morbidity. And you just need to look at the figures. You know, we're at 6 million now on the waiting list, up uh, 1.5 million. Yep. And the projected forecast is between 9 to 10 million in a couple of years. So much for saving the NHS. They've destroyed it. But Ahmed, and, but Ahmed I understand all of that. Yep. And I've been arguing that here for seven or eight months on this show. And I've also been arguing that the private sector can move very quickly. Yeah. When it comes to upping capacity, it's more difficult for the public sector to move. But realistically, can the private sector expand quickly enough, fast enough? Because as we're going, whatever happens, even if it is the end of the pandemic, the numbers waiting for procedures are going up, not down. Can the private sector move quickly enough? Absolutely. They're reactive and they've got the capacity, the facilities. And listen, money talks. And there'll be arguments that it should be for people who want to have insurance and have a rebate. You'd be surprised. More than half the patients that I'm seeing are self-funding. Don't deny them. And it's not the case that they're all middle class Tory voters. We don't want working class people, hardworking people who are suffering, who are paying out of their own pocket to get healthcare. Why should they not have access to healthcare through the private sector and through a tax rebate? Now, some people might say, well, where are all these money trees going to come from? Well, the government's found a forest of money trees funding COVID, 400 billion odd, 9 billion on failed PPE, 4 billion on the tax fraud. So much money has been wasted. They've got a forest of money trees. Like one little forest money tree, one little money tree of 6 billion, 8 billion would make a massive difference to thousands of people, not just elderly people. And I think that's ageist. Why deny? Why discriminate? There are many people, children I'm seeing, with disease and disability. We should offer access well, to you, healthcare you, to you, everyone. You, Ahmed, you've declared your interest in this, and thank you for doing that. Finally, quickly, mm. can the private sector be able to perform two or three million procedures every year? I think absolutely. If the government's serious about this, and they're going to put aside all their nonsense, nonsensical policies to date and be serious about patients and safety and healthcare, then yes, we can do it. But they need to stop politicising the NHS. It's not a football. This is not a game. Patient safety, patient health 
is not a game. Be serious and, you know, we can get this done. Ahmed Malik, thank you very much indeed thank for joining you. us here on GB News. Well, that was very positive and upbeat, and let's absolutely hope that Ahmed is right. Now, look, Cressida Dick has not exactly been my favourite police officer, I have to say. Politically correct, <clears throat> beyond comprehension, allowing officers to take the knee in Whitehall when they were desecrating the cenotaph, vandalising Churchill's statue. I think she's bowed down to political correctness far too much. Listen to some bloke called Nick, who made the most outrageous allegations of sexual abuse, even murder, against senior public figures. She's presided over a Met uh, that has finished up with a 1,000 police officers examining what we say online and whether we're abusive to each other and cause offence to each other whilst knife crime has exploded in London. So I have to say, for my money, I'm very pleased that she's gone. But it's happened in remarkably short order. And it's happened, Mark White, GB News' home affairs and security editor. It seems it's happened because of huge pressure. Suddenly, almost out of nowhere, from Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London. There's no doubt this is the hand of Sadiq Khan at play here. Cressida Dick has said uh, as much in her email. Uh, yep. She has issued a statement uh, through the Metropolitan Police this evening, Nigel, saying it is with huge sadness that following contact with the mayor of London today, it is clear that the mayor no longer has sufficient confidence in my leadership to continue. He has left me no choice but to step aside as commissioner of the Metropolitan Police Service. Uh, she goes on to say that at his request, she has decided to stay on for a little while to yeah. allow a transition uh, to appoint or, a new commissioner. Or maybe even to continue with the Downing Street inquiry. Well, <laughs> I'm sure that she has uh, some other officers who could probably continue that uh, particular investigation for her. Um, but yes, so Sadiq Khan... Uh, is yeah. the man who has effectively wielded the axe here. Now, this is, as you say, um, it's a bit very, unusual. It's happened very quickly, Mark. Yeah, it, it's a surprise because Sadiq Khan had said just in recent days that the commissioner was on notice, not that yeah. uh, he wanted her to go, just that, you know, following so many recent events, and you highlighted um, uh, some of them there. Uh, of course, a big blow for her came with the murder of Sarah Everard by one of her own police officers, a crime nothing to do with the commissioner, of course, no. but issues surrounding uh, the culture within the Metropolitan Police were brought to a fore. Then, of course, you had that demonstration which descended into chaos in uh, southwest London, that vigil mm. that was held for Sarah Everard and a lot of criticism in the days that followed for the Met Commissioner. And then just uh, last week there, the news, the revelation of more in the way of uh, a culture of uh, toxic masculinity, if you like, uh, bullying and intimidation at Charing Cross Police Station. And was that the straw? In central was London. that the straw that broke the back? That was certainly the straw that... Uh, resulted in the London mayor uh, coming out and saying that she was on notice and then repeating that again in interviews that he did with the media just a day or so ago. Uh, so it's clear that Cressida Dick has spoken since then to Sadiq Khan, asking clearly for his uh, backing and, and confidence in her. He was, it seems, unwilling to give that 
so she has agreed to go and she's going. Uh, reaction is coming in. Uh, already the uh, Metropolitan Police Federation. Uh, they, she is very popular, despite what you say, of course, Nigel. Uh, she is very popular with the rank and file. She's seen as a defender of those within the police service doing a very difficult job. Um, and they have said that they are very disappointed uh, that these uh, decisions and criticism that falls on the Mets is often by people who've never walked a day in the shoes of a police officer and doesn't know about the challenges that they face on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I, I know her, I've obviously dealt with her yeah. over the years since 2017. I've always found her a decent, a fair, level-headed woman. But she has, you know, she's taken on a role, Nigel, in uh, the most politically charged policing office there is. The, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, uh, you've effectively straddling two bosses there because you've got Sadiq Khan and whatever issues he might have with you and, of course, a Labour mayor. And then on the other side, the complete opposite, a Conservative Home Secretary yes. who also yes. has to have confidence. Well, it's, it, 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 you know, so from that yeah. point no, of view, I get it's that. far from easy. No, I get it. It's going to be very interesting to see what Jackie yeah. Smith is going to have to say in a few moments' time when she's on this show, former Labour Home Secretary. Mark, you, 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 know, you are a, um, a relative veteran, um, <laughs> if I can say that, but you've been Very following true. home affairs you know, for many, many, many years. Where does the Met go from here? Well, they're going to have to find uh, a commissioner that can take on this uh, challenge, this poison chalice, you might say. But still, it's the best job in policing, of course. Uh, if you're ambitious and you want that role, there will be plenty of candidates. But it is a very difficult role. I don't know one commissioner uh, in the 18 or 19 years that I've been home affairs yeah. specialist yeah. Uh, who hasn't been dogged, beset by controversy and yeah. often has had I to think, leave or be, be sacked. I think Sir Robert Mark, 50 years ago. Yeah, possibly that might I, be I the think, only one. I think he had a very good time as yeah. boss of the Met. I think <laughs> since then it's been very, very difficult. So she'll stay on for the moment. Yeah. Until um, a successor. Well, no, it might be the, the until the appointment of the new commissioner or it yeah. might be until a mechanism is put in place. The last time uh, when she, uh, of course, moved into that office, there was a, an, an interim Commissioner, an acting commissioner taken from the own ranks uh, of Scotland Yard. So it might be that they go down that particular route. But, you know, she's, she's had a very turbulent time right from the get-go. When she started in 2017, she started in a year of unprecedented terrorist activity where we had five terrorist attacks yeah. here in the UK that she dealt with. And it just got, you know, year after year, she was plagued by story after story in what is... Of course, the biggest police force in the country, uh, but a police force that really has to straddle politics in, in a way that no other police service in the country has to do. Mark, very, very well explained. Thank you very much indeed. Well, no question that this has been you know, a very difficult job for Cressida Dick to do. I've given you my thoughts, my comments, my criticisms, but I'm very keen to hear from you. What do you think? What does Cressida Dick's reign at the top of the Met say to you, has she done a good job or a bad job? I want your snap, instinctive opinions on this, farage at gbnews.uk. Let me know what you think about Cressida Dick's time 
running the Met. In a moment, we'll look at Liz Truss having some very big difficulties with the Russian Foreign Minister. Well, I have to say, despite the pressure that was put on, big pressure that was put on by Sadiq Khan over the course of the last few days, and yeah, it looks like the straw were the comments by officers working at the Charing Cross police station. Actually, we're all pretty surprised that Cressida Dick has gone. I asked you for some audience reaction. James says to me, I am delighted that Cressida Dick is going. Let's hope we get a proper police officer who's willing to clip wrongdoers round the ear. I think we've moved on a bit from that. I'm sorry. Lynn says, hashtag disgraceful job. Worst ever. Paul says, good riddance to her. Gosh, you're an uncharitable lot. Alex says, they want a totally woke commissioner. That's why Khan didn't back her. Alan says, sad to see her resign. She was and still is an outstanding Commissioner, a truly fine lady doing one of the hardest jobs in policing. Well, I tell you what, the fact that she's doing one of the hardest jobs in policing is absolutely beyond doubt. Uh, I just question some of her priorities and uh, uh, maybe Sadiq Khan did want somebody rather more woke. I happen to think, particularly over BLM, some of the direction she gave, given that BLM wants to defund the police force, I found some of her reaction to that truly astonishing. Well, I'm joined now by Stephen Roberts, former Deputy Assistant Commissioner at the Met. Stephen, good evening, and thank you for joining us at short notice like this. Good evening. Sadiq Khan really piled the pressure on, didn't he, over the course of the last couple of days? And yet, I'm still surprised that she stood down. Are you? I'm absolutely astonished and saddened. Uh, and Londoners will not do well out of this. She's the best commissioner Londoners have had for a very long time, and there is now a vacancy. Uh, Ms. Sadiq Khan has deprived Londoners of an excellent commissioner, uh, and it's not a good day for Londoners, and it's not a good day for the police service. What were the qualities, Stephen, that made her a good commissioner? Above all, integrity. Uh, she is a woman who has worked her way up from the bottom and managed to gain and keep the respect of officers from top to bottom in the organisation. At a time when the Met has been, let's face it, under pretty hefty pressure, uh, she's kept there in difficult times, made good decisions, and even if some of those decisions were unpopular and she knew they were going to be unpopular, she stuck to her guns. Uh, and did her very best for Londoners. OK. Stephen, a point was raised a few moments ago by Mark White, our Home Affairs and Security Editor, and he said one of the difficulties with being the Met Commissioner, which was always a tough job anyway, said one of the difficulties is that now we have not just the Home Secretary making demands, but we have a Mayor of London making demands. One is on the right of the Conservative Party, one is on the centre-left of the Labour Party. Is it difficult for a Met chief to serve two masters? Yes, of course it is. Um, it, it's, a, it's a difficult setup, uh, but that's, that's part of the job. Uh, I'm afraid that's what every commissioner, uh, or every commissioner over quite a few years now, has had to cope with. It's always been a politically difficult job. It's always been a job where 
sometimes the right decisions will be very unpopular with powerful politicians. But that's part of the role of the, of the police service. And that's why the police service by law has operational independence from politicians. Yes, but it still has pressure exerted upon it. Um, and clearly, uh, in the end, that's what, that, that is what has made her go. In terms of, I mean, she's gone, she's not coming back, you've got regrets. And, and again, Mark White, our Home Affairs editor, said she was popular with serving police officers. I've given some criticisms about decisions that she's made, but hey, I accept that it's a tough job. What, in your opinion, needs to happen now? There needs to be a search for the right man or woman who can take over. Uh, it does worry me that the way in which this commissioner has been treated by politicians, that perhaps some of the best people will think, question themselves as to whether they actually want to step into the line of fire. Um, if you treat people badly, it's very difficult to replace them. So I don't expect the process to be quick. Uh, and I don't accept that it will necessarily select the best person in the UK to do the job. Um, that will be part of the price that the Home Secretary and the Mayor will have to pay for having made a decision in this way. So in conclusion, Stephen Roberts, a day that you regret. A day that I deeply regret and a day that Londoners should regret. Thank you very much for giving us that fast reaction here on GB News. Well, that was... Stephen Roberts, former Deputy Assistant Commissioner of the Met. And it's clear uh, that she was popular amongst police officers. Uh, not popular with me, but popular amongst police officers. Ultimately, not popular indeed with the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. She's gone. We will see what happens. Now, the Ukraine. We've been obsessed with Partygate uh, and now we've got Crested a Dick Gate, I suppose, that'll rumble on for a little bit. But the situation in the Ukraine is very serious. In the last 48 hours, reports that the Russian military build-up is increasing. And, and back to Mark White, our GP News Home Affairs and Security Editor, who's prepared this package on what's going on right now in the Ukraine. Training for urban warfare. These are some of the 300 British troops currently stationed in Poland. They are part of the UK's enhanced forward presence in Eastern Europe. They've now been joined by another 350 Royal Marines who arrived in Poland today. There to greet them, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It is a British show of solidarity with its allies in the region, as Russia shows no sign of reducing its military build-up on the border with Ukraine. We need to work together now uh, to achieve de-escalation, uh, to persuade uh, Vladimir Putin to, to de-escalate and, de and to disengage. We won't accept... Poland and the UK won't accept a world in which a powerful neighbour can bully or attack their neighbours. Alongside this show of strength, the diplomatic mission, with the UK's foreign and defence secretaries engaged in talks in Moscow over the next two days. 
The UK's former chief of the general staff said, despite the continued Russian military build-up, he's confident a diplomatic solution will be found. I believe this was always a situation where Putin was going to assemble force. He was going to intimidate. He was going to bully. He was going to threaten, and he's actually in a much stronger position. Like that, if he moves in, the Ukrainians will fight. The body bags will flow back to Russia, and he will be in a Chechnya, Georgia type situation. More Russian naval forces are continuing their transit towards the Black Sea, despite claims by the French president that he'd secured assurances from Vladimir Putin that there would be no further military escalation. Claims rejected by the Kremlin. For the British government, there is a tricky balance to be struck. Yet, of course, keep up the diplomacy, hence the Foreign and Defence Secretary's visits to Moscow. But they also don't want to be seen to be rewarding Russian aggression. That's why this visit to Poland by the Prime Minister is seen as vital in offering full support to understandably nervous allies in the region. As Russia continues with what it claims are scheduled military manoeuvres, Ukraine today begins its own large-scale exercises along its eastern border. With so much in the way of rival firepower within sight of each other, the risk of miscalculation is ever-present. Mark White, GB News. And our Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, has indeed today been in meetings with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian Foreign Minister. And Russian newspaper, Commerçant, has reported that during their meeting today, when Sergei Lavrov, Lavrov asked ironically whether she recognised his country's sovereignty over Rostov and, and Voronez, two Russian provinces near Ukraine where troops, troops are currently stationed, Truss replied, the UK will never recognise Russia's sovereignty over these regions before being corrected by the UK ambassador to Moscow, Deborah Bronart. Sergei Lavrov said the talks were the conversation of a mute and a deaf person. Likening the situation to a comedy, he scoffed. It's as if we listen to each other, but we don't hear. Our detailed explanations fell on unprepared soil. And it looks very much like that what Lavrov has done today is utterly humiliated Britain's foreign secretary. But then, if she didn't know the answer to the questions she was being asked, she shouldn't have pretended. And that's a golden rule for all of us in our careers, wherever you are. If you don't know, ask. And she had the British ambassador with her. Embarrassing, not good, not professional. More reaction to Cressida Dick's resignation. Den says it must be an absolute priority that any new commissioner totally rejects the concept of political correctness from the get-go. John says Cressida Dick should have been sacked months ago by the government. She's been absolutely useless. Robert says a failure in her time at the top of policing. Mark says in a nutshell, an awful job, knife crime ignored and politically correct policing. The police need to be reformed and to come back and be a force. Well, in a moment, I can talk about all of this with Britain's first ever female Home Secretary. Joining me on Talking Pints is Jackie Smith.
Well, on this evening of dramatic breaking news with Cressida Dick resigning, I couldn't really have a better person to have come into the GB News pub to join me for Talking Pints than Jackie Smith. Jackie, welcome to Talking Pints. Cheers, Nigel. I apologise that the ice machine has broken. And no lemon either. And it's not good. It's <laughs> not good. But I'm on the Thatcher's cider because I don't want to be told by the Colston Four what I can and can't drink. Now... Before we talk about your life in politics and the big ups and downs that you had, it was sort of 48 hours ago that suddenly Sadiq Khan started talking in a, in a way about Cressida Dick that he never had mm. before. Were you surprised she resigned tonight or was it inevitable? Do you know, I was out for a run yesterday morning listening to the radio and hearing Sadiq Khan talking about her and I, I thought at the time... It's very difficult for a Met Commissioner to operate if she has lost the confidence of the Mayor of London. And then today I think we heard, I mean, and previously we heard Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, not having an awful lot of confidence in her. Mm. And I, so therefore, although it's a shock in some ways because she'd only today said she wasn't going to step down, I think if you lose the confidence like that, and she said publicly that she feels the mayor had lost confidence in mm. her, mm. then it's not that surprising that she feels that she has to go. Oh, it's a hard job, of course it is. But, but it just, you know, it's very interesting. You know, here we've got a Labour mayor of London uh, and a Labour mayor to the left of the centre of the Labour Party and a Conservative Home Secretary who is to the right of the centre of the Conservative Party. I mean, you know, you were Home Secretary. I mean, it's a devil of a job, isn't it, being Met Commissioner? It's a, it is enormously difficult. And as we've seen over recent weeks and months, things happen in the Met that have national ramifications. Yeah. You know, there have been lots of things that have happened that I think have been utterly unacceptable. Um, you know, just last week, the WhatsApp messages, you know, I think shocked lots of people in the sort of hideousness of what people were saying. Yeah. But to a certain extent, Nigel, I felt a bit triggered, I have to say, by this. Triggered, today. as it were. <laughs> I knew you'd love oh, we're back I knew to you'd one. love Article it. Article 15. <laughs> <laughs> because um, when I was Home Secretary, of course, the Mayor of London was Boris Johnson. And um, yeah. we had a similar issue with Sir Ian Blair at that same time, where essentially... Um, and Boris, you know, in a way that was slightly inappropriate for a mayor, as you could argue, it's been for Sadiq Khan, stepped in and said, look, I've lost confidence. And at that point, Sir Ian had to go. and We had to appoint mm. a new Met Commissioner. So um, it's a strange setup because essentially the, the Commissioner is appointed by the Home Secretary in consultation with the Mayor of London. If there is not confidence, probably from either of them, it's almost an impossible job to do. How was Boris to work with? <laughs> um, Come on, honest answer. Um, well, I do remember vividly a meeting, a Cobra meeting about security for the... Oh, what, he turned up, you mean, at the Cobra Well, piece? no, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. He did eventually, but he arrived, I think it was about a sort of 45-minute meeting. He turned up about 35 minutes late and thought I was going to go back to the beginning of the agenda... I'm afraid I wasn't willing to because, sorry, if you can't turn up on time for the Home Secretary... Oh, you were obviously a very tough Home Secretary. <laughs> well, look. Jackie, I want to take you back a little bit and thank you for responding to, to, to you know... And, and, and whether we agree that Cressida Dick did a good job or a bad job, it is a very difficult position. For I mean, I, ha I will just you. say, having worked with her, she's had a phenomenal career in mm. the police force and things have gone wrong recently, 
But I don't think that that should take away from her career, her position as the first female Met Commissioner, and I think she should be proud of her police, police career. Now, that's a very fair point. Now, your political career started in the most extraordinary time. It was 1997. We'd had 18 years of Conservative rule. The country was ready for a change. And the Labour Party, which had been ripping itself to pieces a decade before, suddenly was in the hands of some very clever marketing people. Take a look at this. you vote in 1997, Nigel? Um, I can't remember, but... I, I, did you I, not vote for Tony Blair? No, I didn't. I didn't. But I, I didn't know. But I have to say that I remember at the time looking at that, seeing the use of that piece of music, seeing optimism being brought into politics and thinking, this is blooming brilliant. Mm. I thank goodness the Sun newspaper, which played a big role in that election because the Sun backed Labour, and that was very important, but Rupert Murdoch got a concession out of Blair, which was not to join the Euro without giving a referendum, and that was, that was why the Sun gave the support, and thank goodness for that. Otherwise, I think Blair would have taken us into the Euro, which I think would have been a catastrophe. Um, no, I admired, absolutely admired, what Campbell did, what Mandelson did, what Blair did. It was brilliant intellectual terms. I mean, I didn't know they were going to, you know, open the doors to the world in an extraordinary way. But it must have been. But you came in as part of that wave. And I remember the first morning of Blair in Downing Street. I mean, it was almost like the second coming. <laughs> I mean, there was, and, and of course, you were part of the biggest ever female intake of MPs. Mm -hmm. But they must have been very exciting times, those first couple of years. Oh, they were. But, I mean, I, I have to take slight issue with you. I Go think on. there was a bit more than marketing about it. You know, there had been a real effort to reform the Labour Party. I said, I did say. You okay. did, to be no, fair, come on, you did come say on. that. But to be honest, that had happened before 1992 when I stood for the first time. And yet we couldn't get over the line so at Kinnock, that point. So Kinnock had done great work, yeah. actually. I mean, yeah. the battle against the Derek Hattons. Yeah. And, and he's never been given credit for that, actually. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. I get that. I get that. But suddenly you're there. You've got a huge majority. Yeah. A completely uncritical press. A Conservative Party that just rolled over on their backs and stayed there for years. I mean, they were extraordinary times, weren't they? It was a phenomenal time to be elected into Parliament, you're right. I mean, it had, we hadn't been certain, you know. I think now you look back on it and you think, oh, it was inevitable. But I can remember working enormously hard. Everybody was very, very careful. We had that pledge card, if you remember, with five in some ways, quite limited pledges on it because we needed to prove to people that we could be responsible with their money, that we could make a change, that we were about hope in the future. Um, and then, of course, we got into government. It was incredibly exciting, as you say. You know, I can remember the first time I went into Parliament and sat on those. Well, I didn't, in fact, sit on the benches because there's so many Labour MPs, we couldn't actually sit down, <laughs> um, which was, you know, brilliant. But... <laughs> um, but you know, in some ways, of course, as Tony Blair always made clear, 
We did a lot of stuff in government. But one of the problems about having a majority that big is that you don't, the size of your majority doesn't make things change quicker. It means you're likely to win votes in Parliament, but it still takes time to do the sort of reform that we wanted to do. And sometimes that led to a bit of sort of frustration from from my own party as much as from the country. And you rise up through the ranks and you become the first ever female Home Secretary. What's day one like? Is it a bit daunting? Well, day one, Nigel, I woke up. um, I I got uh, appointed by Gordon Brown when he became the Prime Minister on the Thursday. Uh, went into the Home Office. They began to do the briefings. Yeah. Friday morning, I got woken up by my private secretary saying, uh, well, there's been a terror attack. Thank goodness the bomb, which was in a car in Haymarket in London, has failed to go off, but you need to come in. So I had to go into the Home Office. I got greeted by people from the Office of uh, Security and Counterterrorism who said... When we come into your office, Home Secretary, it means that something serious is happening. And then over that weekend, that was the time when the terrorists, having failed to detonate the bomb in London, then drove up to Glasgow, drove their jeep into the front of Glasgow Airport. So to say it was a sort of um, baptism of fire is is true. But in some ways, thank goodness there were no uh, um, injuries amongst the public. So I learnt very, very quickly that responsibility of Home Secretary is to keep the country safe. And it's the toughest job in British politics. It's always been the toughest job in British politics. Um, It's almost difficult to win, isn't it, really? (laughs) Well, I I said, uh, you know, it's an enormous honour to be given the job of keeping the British public safe, of securing our borders, of securing our our country. But... um, It's also about stopping bad things from happening. So every time something bad happens, it almost invariably falls under the auspices of the Home Office. So you wake up in the morning, you listen to the headlines, you think to yourself, "Mm, several of those things are my responsibility and I'm going to be getting a hard time when I go into the office today. But it's kind of, you know, your political career is kind of a bit like life, really, isn't it? You know, Riding High riding high in April, uh, the old Sinatra song. You're going to sing that? Shot down. Um, maybe a few more of these, I might. Uh, shot down in May. Because it all, you know, goes wrong, the expenses scandal, and you find yourself in a difficult and embarrassing, I won't go into it, but embarrassing position. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 2010 election comes. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, one minute, you're in one of the four great offices of state, and the next minute, it's all gone. Well, there's this cliche, isn't there, that all political careers end in failure. Yeah. They don't usually end in quite such a um, public <laughs> I'm sorry way. to laugh, but it was, <laughs> it was... No, that's the only thing you can do, Nigel. Yeah. They don't usually end quite so publicly like that, which is tough on you as a politician, tough on your family. I mean, I was in a marginal seat, so I sort of, in one way, I almost always knew that when Labour went out of government, mm. I would mm. go out of government as mm. well. And in some ways, you know, I mean, I think people do heroic work in opposition, but I'm not sorry that I haven't had to be an opposition MP because it's a tough old job, that. Um, and I've been able to sort of build since 2010 an interesting yeah, new and you've done you've done Strictly Come Dancing, as I Indeed. mentioned earlier. It wasn't, you weren't a huge success, <laughs> it, but, you, but, you did, but you did it, which is brave. Broadcasting, mm-hmm. which you clearly enjoy very much. But I... A couple of things. You seemed to be very committed to the European Union. I was. Project. 
which new la- which, which, which new Labour was. Yeah. And I was astonished when Blair was president, uh, the six-month presidency, when I met, you know, nearly all of the cabinet that were coming through Brussels and Strasbourg, and I was astonished at their level of devotion and belief in it. I mean, you were almost in mourning, weren't you? Political mourning mm. after the Brexit result. Have you recovered? <laughs> Look, let me let, I'll let you into a secret, Nigel. My now ex-husband, this isn't the reason why he's ex, but... Yeah. He voted to leave the European Union. And one of the things he said to me was, he said, but Jackie used to go to European councils and you used to text me and say, you know, oh, God, this is, I can't get the things done I want to do. This is a, this is a bit of a nightmare. And I said to him, yeah, but we were in the room. We were in the discussions. We were having some influence. Being outvoted. Um, but we were, but we were there, and we were making a difference. Now. I was there too. And what's more, of course you were. Yeah. And um, people were, and in the on the international stage, we were larger and more influential. Is you my really view. still believe? That? Yeah, I really right. still believe. Well, I, mean, I, I think everything no, we've seen since the show. I'm not going to replay that debate, but I think actually now, in terms of foreign policy, we're very much more powerful. I want to ask you one last poli- mm. one last political question. Okay. Since 2000, the British population has risen by 8 million. Mm-hmm. 84% of that is directly because of policies that New Labour put in place and the Conservatives followed. 84% of that is because of migration, immigration, into the United Kingdom. Has that been a good thing for our country? Look, I think largely migration has been a good thing for our country. I don't favour free uh, and, and completely open borders. You know, I believe that we should have controlled migration, but I think we should do that on the basis of fairness. I think, incidentally, when people are fleeing persecution, we should welcome them into our country as a tolerant and welcoming place. You know, one of my one of the things that I disagree with you about is I think sometimes you've used that issue to raise people's concerns in a way that hasn't actually been reasonable. Of course, but listen... I so how many is reasonable, Jackie? No, how many is reasonable? I, I, I don't think it's necessarily about numbers. I think it's about... And I made this clear when I was Home Secretary. Mm. I think it's about welcoming in people who can make a contribution to this country, who are willing to stick by our rules, who are willing to speak our... our to, to speak English, all but you have that. to be able to train them. No, all to do of that. that. All so of that's all of those crucial. things I believed in. But also, yeah. when people are fleeing persecution, we should be the type of country that opens our arms to them. We always have been. Mm, yeah, except, over the, over except you were perfectly willing to stand in front of pictures of people who well, arguably were well, fleeing persecution and, and it turned to make out, people scared. It turned about out, it. sadly, I was right for the wrong reasons. Well, no, I don't think because, because now they come because now these young men come across the English Channel in boats. Um, they're the same people that came through, and they've been living in Germany for two or three years, and now they come across. So I was, I was right for the wrong reasons. But we can disagree on that, because I think it is about numbers. But finally, 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 what next? Well, I am, I am very happy now, as well as the broadcasting stuff that I do. I also chair two big NHS trusts. I care a lot about that. I mean, what a difficult time our NHS That's going to keep staff. you busy. Indeed. Our NHS staff have been through an incredibly difficult time. Now the job is... How do we get the waiting list down? How do we support our staff? How do we continue to grow that? And I'm, you know, I'm having fun, Nigel, and Good. being here with you has Good. been lovely. I'm having fun too. Thank <laughs> you for joining me on Talking Pints. That was Jackie Smith. Well, we're almost out of time, but I've got uh, maybe time 
for a couple of Barrage the Farage questions, but my conversation with Jackie Smith was too interesting to stop. Raymond asks me, what do you think of Nicola Sturgeon keeping COVID restrictions in place? Ludicrous, ridiculous, over the top, statist, ghastly. Robbo asks, is Mr Lavrov grossly rude or has he got sensory loss? He is undoubtedly rude, but probably right. And finally, Mickey asks, John Major talks about honesty, democracy. Is he a hypocrite in your opinion? Most people in politics are guilty of hypocrisy in one way or another. We have finished for the night. I'm back with you next Monday. 